Well, good morning. It's always a privilege to be here with God's people, to open up God's Word, to hear God's message to us. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, we are going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let us read God's word this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is our great honor and privilege to open up your word that you have preserved for us throughout these many years. And I pray, Father, that you would use this word by the power of your Spirit to speak to our lives, that you would help us behold the beauties of Christ, his sufficiency, and his glory. I pray that it would speak through the fog of the different voices that speak to our lives on a daily basis. And may it be a strength, an encouragement, and even an admonition so that we would live our lives for your glory and to the praise of your name. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. How did I get here? Have you ever asked that question? If we take here to mean 6251 South Brainerd Avenue in Countryside, Illinois... All we would have to do is enumerate the various steps we took to get here. I went south on Grand Avenue, made a left on 55th, made a right on Brainerd, and here I am. But what if here doesn't mean a physical place, but a spiritual state? How did I get here? in this state of bitterness where I can't find the strength to forgive those who have offended me? How did I get here where I am apathetic both toward God and His people? How did I get here where there is little love for God and His law? How did I get here where I am concerned more about this life than the future inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. 
How did I get here where sin is no longer loathsome? Where I look at my spiritual success with great amazement and devilish pride. How did I get here? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have. That is most likely the question in Naomi's mind. How did I get here alone and empty? We are just five verses into the book and we immediately find Naomi alone and empty, bereft of her husband and her two sons. Her security is gone. Her financial stability gone. Her future is in jeopardy. She is destitute in a foreign land. All her dreams, aspirations, ambitions Gone. No visiting the nursery to pick up the grandchildren. No more celebrating birthdays. No more receiving Mother Day uh, cards. Everything gone. But how did she get here? What were the events, the circumstances that brought her to a place where she was alone and empty? What we know is that Naomi is not here in this place of loneliness and emptiness by accident. She didn't just wake up destitute. She journeyed toward her destitution. Naomi walked to her emptiness. Every small decision she took, she was walking toward being empty and alone. We are no different. We are here Because we have walked, we have journeyed here. Whatever your here is this morning, you didn't wake up there today. You took small steps to get to your here. How did I get here? Have you ever asked yourself that question? So... In order to answer this question that Naomi has most likely in her mind, let us revisit our verses and observe Naomi's slow walk to her eventual destitution and take heed of the Lord's warning this morning. Our text begins with, In the days when the judges ruled. And that is not just a timestamp, it's a theological timestamp. You might recall the last time we looked at the book of Ruth together in an overview fashion that the time or the period of the judges was particularly a dark period in the time of the nation of Israel. The judges were local chiefs or leaders that God called up to deliver his people when they were under the oppression of another nation. And it's you and these judges were raised up because of Israel's disobedience. These days when the judges ruled were days that dripped with chaos and turmoil. Israel had spired out of control and had descended into depths of depravity. And because of this, there was no justice for anyone. You can say that Lady Justice had been robbed of her scales, the blindfold ripped off her eyes. No one was seeking to do right. 
And by the end of the book of Judges, what we find is that Israel is in essence just like the Canaanites, the depraved Canaanites they were called to expel. The book of Judges ends ominously stating two tragedies. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And because everyone did what was right in their own eyes and justice was self-referential, self-determined, and pragmatic, the opposite was true. Everyone did what was evil in God's eyes. Therefore, the next words we read are indicative of a covenantal curse. And what are the next words? There was a famine in the land. In Deuteronomy 28, we have listed covenantal blessings and curses. And the, for the people of Israel, based on their obedience or disobedience. In verse 23, this is what it says in that chapter. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The famine was because of Israel's disobedience. They were starving because they were sinning. And faced with God's famine-produced punishment, the inhabitants of Bethlehem have a choice to make. And they have to choose their next steps wisely. Either they stay in Bethlehem by repenting and trusting God for deliverance And provision, or they seek greener pastures elsewhere. And what is the response that we have in our text? It says, A man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in Moab. At this point, the text is overflowing with a bit of irony. The literal meaning of the word Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet, it's not full of bread. If anything, the house of bread is full of empty stomachs. But notice the decision by this man, who is later identified as Elimelech, which means, his name means God is king, which is important. And you have to tuck that in the back of your mind for the moment. We'll come back to that here in a few minutes. Elimelech observes Uh, the severity of the famine and understands that death eventually awaits him and his family and decides to take his wife and two boys east to the fields of Moab. Now, before we condemn Elimelech and say, how dare he? How can he abandon God's land and the possession that God gave to the people of Israel? Before we do that, we have to put famine into perspective. In the years 1932 to 1933, there was a famine in Soviet Ukraine. The famine is known as the Terror Famine, and estimated 4 to 7 million people died. Timothy Snyder, in his book Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, writes about the Terror Famine and says... Survival was a moral as well as a physical struggle. A woman doctor wrote to a friend in, 19, in June of 1933, 
And she said that she had not become a cannibal, at least yet. And she was not sure that she would, rem- not, rem- she would re- not be a cannibal by the time the famine was over. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or to po- prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. That is what famine does. How much stress is placed upon someone during a famine? Enough stress to kill your very own children. Elimelech faced desperate times. But we must observe that Elimelech's moving to Moab is not like us deciding to move to New York or to Orlando. For Israel, their home address mattered. We must remember that the promised land was not about bragging rights. It's not like Israel saying, yay, we defeated the Canaanites, you, uh, hooray for us. Israel had been delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hand and given the land of the promised land as a special possession. Yet, Elimelech was willing to abandon the place that God had given his people and go to a place where the people were cursed. There are several reasons why Elimelech's move toward Moab was rebellious. First, the proper response to a famine was not to evade the covenantal curse that God had imposed on his, uh, on his people. The answer to a famine was repentance. Look at what Deuteronomy says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mine, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. The response to famine was repentance. Yet, Elimelech left. The other reason, Moab had a checkered past. First of all, Moab is a product of a, an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Secondly, Moab, the Moabites resisted Israel's passage to the promised land after Israel's exodus from Egypt. And you find that in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. In Numbers 25, we see that Moabite women seduced the men of Israel into sin, bringing destruction on God's people. And lastly, in Deuteronomy 23, Moses specifically excludes Moabites from entering into the assembly of God's people. They were accursed people. Elimelech's eastward movement away from the promised land is actually reminiscent of Cain's eastward movement from Eden after killing his brother. We see that when God confronts Cain, there is no repentance. And Genesis 4.16 says that he that Cain wandered to the land of Nod east 
of Eden. Elimelech seemed to take his cue from Cain's playbook. Instead of repenting, he moved east, away from the land of God and away from the presence of God. We look at Elimelech and understand his predicament. He indeed was at a fork in the road. But as we look at Elimelech making this rebellious choice, we learn this. Our decisions in adversity reflect the patterns of decisions we make in times of ease. Let me repeat that again. Our decisions in adversity reflect the patterns of decisions we make in times of ease. If we had an opportunity to look at all the other decisions Elimelech had made in his lifetime before going to Moab, we would have not had a doubt why he left Moab because it would have revealed to us that God wasn't important and his people weren't important. The famine exposed his heart. And it Difficult times in our lives will also expose our hearts. The small decisions we make today matter because they are as much before God as our big decisions. Our small habits today matter because every decision we make orients our hearts. Our small decisions we have, have brought us to the place we are at here Whatever you're here might be this morning, it's because of the different small choices you have made. Elimelech chose Moab because he had a pattern of not choosing to obey God. In the end, Elimelech was a pragmatist. He intended to sojourn in Moab until the famine subsided in Israel. And then... His plan was to return. You can imagine him reasoning with himself. It's not like I'm going to become a citizen of Moab. It's not like I'm going to live there forever. I'm just going to go sojourn there. And when this is all done, I'll be right back. After all, I am called to provide for my family, ain't I? Oh, how crafty we are when it comes to rationalizing our sinful decisions. Elimelech's first question when taking this decision is not, does it please God? His first question is, how can I solve this issue of hunger? His concern was himself, not God. And although his name was God as king, in his life, he was king. God wasn't. He, like everyone else, did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of repenting and seeking mercy in God, which was abundantly available, and God made it clear again and again that His compassion and mercy was for His people, He refused it. He secretly danced to Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, singing the arrogant lyrics underneath His breath. And I know the end is near, And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I am certain. I lived a life that is full. I traveled each and every highway and more, much more. I did it. I did it my way. Regrets, I had a few. But then again, too few to mention. 
I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exception. I planned each chartered course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more. I did it. I did it my way. Isn't that our hearts? His Facebook wall was filled with posts that read, God helps those who help themselves. You only live once. Create your own destiny. You are in charge of your happiness. Oh, the tragedy that there is an elimelech in all of us. Deep down, we are pragmatists at heart, looking what is best for me, myself, and I. We come to church, we sing the songs, we agree with orthodox doctrine, but deep down there is a desire to join Elimelech singing this song, My Way. After all, who doesn't want their way? We all want my way. In verse 2, we get introduced to the rest of the family. The wife, Naomi, and her name means pleasant, which will become important in future sermons. And lastly, the two sons, who are Malon and Kilion. And it says that they are from Bethlehem in Judah. This connection to Bethlehem will become more pronounced as we reach the end of the book. You might recall that our last time together, we mentioned that Ruth is a bridge from the curse of the judges to the blessing of the king David, the boy from Bethlehem. The book will ultimately bridge us, not just to David, but to Christ, who is also born in Bethlehem and who is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And so this family of four makes a 55-mile-plus trek to the fields of Moab and remain there. Pragmatism always works until it doesn't. Verse 3 begins with the word but. The word but is a conjunction of contrast. And in narrative, it tells us that the story is about to take a turn, either for the good or for the worse. In our story, this but indicates a turn for the worse. Why? Well, Elimelech dies. The excitement of arriving at Moab, the greener pastures, uh, to elongate their lives is beginning to slip away. With the death of Elimelech, things are more complicated and Naomi is now left with her two sons. Now they have decisions to make. What began as a sojourning is now turning into a permanent stay. It looks like Elimelech's plan to just be there and not become a citizen is not panning out. Things in Israel were still not well, and Naomi had a a choice to make, either return to famine-stricken Israel or stay there in Moab. But returning to Israel would not just mean that she had to deal with the famine. Her sons had to find wives and raise hope for a progeny. So they decided to stay. And as one commentator puts it, they still rated their prospects more highly in Moab than in Judah. They felt more at home in the land of compromise 
than in the land of promise. The taking of Moabite wives by Malon and Kilion indicates that they wanted to stay in Moab. You don't take Moabite wives and plan to return to Israel because the law of God said that Moabite, the Moabites were not allowed into the assembly of Israel. So by them taking wives, in essence, barred them from returning to Israel. Seems that pragmatism was the mode of operation for this family. This family, catechized by Elimelech, the ultimate pragmatist, Naomi could have taken this opportunity to return, reasoning we are outside of God's covenantal blessings. We should go back now. But she didn't. And as we read, we see that there is no regard for God's people, for God's law, or God's land in this family. The question that they are asking at this point is is not, is this time to return in repentance to Israel? The, The question is not, did dad die because there was disobedience? No, the question is, we have another problem. How do we solve it? How do we better our circumstances? What works? How can we preserve our lives? But isn't that our temptation as well? Aren't we consumed with preserving our brief and momentary lives? Don't we make these same adjustments, trying to figure out what we must change in order to get our plans to pan out? Jesus warned about this foolish thinking in Matthew 6, 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Pragmatism makes you think of the here and now. Christ confronts us and makes us think of the then and later. But there's trouble in Moab. The plan hatched by Malon and Kilion and Naomi seemed to have been a well-devised plan for the time being. For several years, the plan is working. But by year 10, they knew that there was a problem. Malon and Kilion weren't having children. And again, Naomi and her sons are presented with another obstacle that they have to solve. But this time, they can't. Why? Because God was in control. And what we see is that he is most evidently in control here. How? Well, Ruth could not bear a child for 10 years. Yet... When she consummated her marriage with Boaz, she was immediately pregnant. And what it tells us is that God had stricken these two brothers with sterility for their disobedience. And if sterility weren't enough of an obstacle to overcome, Naomi is devastated by one last climactic blow to her family plans. She is emptied and left alone. Why? Because her sons die. 
Verse 5 ends in a tragic and heart-wrenching tone. And it seems that the narrator wants to make one point clear, and it is this. Naomi has been emptied and left alone. The text says Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left, or you can use the word deprived, without her two boys and her husband. Not only is Naomi deprived of her future security, but she is left nameless in the narrative. Instead of using the proper name Naomi to conclude verse 5, the narrator doesn't. He uses the generalized word woman. It seems that in her destitution, she had not just lost her sense of security. She had lost her identity. Pragmatism works until it doesn't. Living self-referentially and apathetic to God's plan and purposes will flourish and prosper for a while, but in the end, it will always leave us alone and empty. Naomi's world came crashing down and all she was left was surrounded by the tattered pieces of a ruined family. Naomi had left with her husband to avoid death, yet ironically, that is what they encounter, what Malan, Elimelech, and Kilion encounter, leaving her empty. The purpose of, for her living was gone. It is a truly tragic scene that we have here in the end of verse 5, but it's also a hopeful scene. You say, well, how, how is this scene hopeful? Because in this scene, we get the answer to our question. How did I get here? The answer is our foolish, self-centered, and arrogant decisions got us here. And that is what got Naomi to where she was at. But it also is because of God that we are here. It has been God's grace to help us see that the fields of Moab are empty. And they are full of false hope. It is God's grace that allows us to see that pragmatism doesn't work. God's grace helps us to see that losing this life to gain the next is always worth it. For God is committed to saving us. God is committed to saving wicked sinners, even if the process is slow and painful. How do we know? Well, verse 6 tells us that good news arrived to Naomi from the fields of Mo- from arrived to Naomi in the fields of Moab and it says that God visited his people he extended his grace and the good news was helpful in her place of destitution but how else do we know that God is committed to saving wicked sinners when when we continue to scan the drama of redemption we find someone else who was abandoned We find another destitute. We see someone who is empty. Christ Jesus. But his destitution and his emptiness is not because of self-serving decisions. His destitution is willful and for our sake and salvation. One commentator says, The God who empties us and strips us, Away, however painful those precious things in which we are trusting, knows what it is to be stripped of all his possessions, 
left alone and abandoned by his friend and hung empty on a cross. Every tear of loss that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. Christ experienced our hurts, our fears, our wounds, and our anxiety. He even experienced our emptiness when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned. This is the difference between Christ and us. We try to save our lives, yet he laid it down for us freely and without reservations. He was forsaken and abandoned in order that we would never would be forsaken or abandoned. How did I get here? How did you get here? God. Even in our rebellion, He is working out His secret plan. So the call that we have before us this morning is to repent from my way thinking and trust in His faithfulness and graciousness and compassion. We must not live my way. We must realize that it's only in Christ and in following Him in obedience that our life receives full and lasting satisfaction. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You because even in our rebellion, You pursue us and You help us to understand that our way is wrong and it's not fulfilling. In the end, it's going to produce heartache and pain. Help us to see that it's in losing our life that we gain it for the glory of Christ. Father, make this real in the life of Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church. Make it powerful and help us live for your glory and to the praise of your name. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.